So here's, uh, here's the thought for today. Christianity is the most culturally diverse movement in all of human history. I mean, just, just think about that just, just for a second. Like, how, how did that happen? That, that this podunk preacher named Jesus from Nazareth became a leader to which thousands, millions of people all around the world would come to look to him for forgiveness, for, for healing, for restored relationships between each other, for a restored relationship between us and God all around the world. I mean, it just, it kind of just doesn't make sense. However, Jesus's movement changed the whole world. His movement is us. It's the church and the church changed the world through cultural disruptive unity, meaning, meaning that the church didn't change the world through a harsh, boisterous message of, of division or superiority, but the church ended up changing the world through a message of unity and equality. You see, in, in a society like the one that Jesus grew up in, in a society that was uh, marked by honor and shame, where someone could climb the social ladder by the amount of money that they had, where, where outcasts were really the majority of the population, the church pushed back against all of that. The church challenged all of that. The groups of people who were segregated by race, ethnicity, religion, gender, all of that were brought together to worship a crucified savior. And Jesus, he was so explicitly clear about this that he said that, that he came to bring a new kind of kingdom, a kingdom that wasn't uh, defined by region or by uh, earthly kingdom, but that Jesus came to bring a new kingdom that was not of this earth, but it was eternal in the heavens. And so the early church, early church followers of Jesus, they would talk about how they were citizens of this heavenly kind of kingdom, this different kind of kingdom that, that even though they were here on earth, their citizenship really belonged to heaven. And this was so challenging to the people of the day. I mean, I, I can't, I can't quite tell you how revolutionary Christianity was in the first century. That the early followers of Jesus, like the Apostle Paul, they would say things that were just so profound, so amazing, but also that were so appalling, so disruptive, so, so disgusting to the people at the time. I think of when Paul said this in Galatians chapter three, Paul said, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Wait, 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 wait. That... That's not how the world works, right? There, there is Jew and there is non-Jew. That's how the world is defined and separated. That, that just doesn't make sense. That's not how the world operates. And Paul would say, okay, you're starting to get it. I'll tell you what else there isn't. There is neither slave nor free. Hold on, you're, you're telling me that in God's eyes, I have as much value as my master does. 
You're telling me that, that, that I mean as much to God as my master means to God. You're telling me that, that I'm as valuable as my slave. Well, yes, but, but God's economy doesn't work like our economy. It doesn't work like our gross personal production where we're not evaluated the same way, but yeah, you're, you're starting to get it. Nor is there male and female. That men and women have the same dignity, the same standing, which was just appalling. Because in this day and age, women were essentially property. They, they had no value. And Paul pushes against all of that and says, no, that, that's not the way things work in God's kingdom. He says, and, and here's the reason why he says, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, if you belong to Christ, then indeed you are Abraham's descendants, heirs, according to the promise. So I'm, I'm one with my slave. I'm one with my master. I'm, I'm one with women. I'm, I'm one and equal among men. One is in no way above the other. There is no distinction from another. And the reason why this was, this was such a big idea and such a big deal for the early followers of Jesus, it wasn't just because Jesus said some really wise, profound things about equality and unity and equity and all of that. He, he certainly did. But Jesus lived this. this. This was how he went about his life through the daily world. And so one day Jesus was having dinner at a Pharisee's house, a religious leader of the day. It was a hoity-toity type thing. Only, only special people were invited to this. And Jesus notices that a man is walking by who, who is clearly ill. Jesus invites him over in front of all of the people who think that they're too good. Jesus heals him, sends him on his way. And then Jesus begins teaching all of these religious elites about some, some table manners, some, some, some proper dining etiquette. And he says, why do you, why do you always fight over who gets the best seat at the table? The most, the most honorable seat, who, who gets to sit at the head of the table? Why do you keep fighting about that? Stop it. Take the lowest seat. And why is it that you all only invite people who are like you only people who can repay you for a meal like this? You only invite your rich friends. You only invite your family members. Never once do you invite poor people. Never once do you invite strangers to come and share a meal with you. You see, Jesus is teaching by example, but he's using them as the bad example. Don't be like this. And before we get too excited. And we say, yeah, Jesus, you, you tell those hypocrites, you tell them just how it is. They only care about people who care about them. That's right. Before you get too excited, take out your phone, open up your contacts and just scroll through it. Who, who in there would not be able to repay you a meal that you would share with them? Who, who in there wouldn't be able to repay your 
fine four course meal with maybe nothing more than a value meal from McDonald's. I mean, I, I don't know, but my hunch is there's probably not too many in your contact list. I know that's true for me. There's not very many that we're in that kind of relationship. And yet this is what Jesus constantly did. He constantly invited people to come to his table, to share a table with him that they didn't deserve to be there. And yet Jesus says, you're the one who I want more than anyone else to share a meal with. And so <clears throat> Jesus then jumps into a story, a parable, which is a, a made up story, but it's real enough that it challenges all of our reality. And so Jesus, uh, in the middle of this dinner, he goes into this story. This comes from Luke uh, chapter 14. It says, then Jesus replied, a certain man hosted a large dinner and invited many people. When it was time for the dinner to begin, he sent his servant to tell the invited guest, come, the dinner is now ready. One by one, they all began to make excuses. The first one told him, I bought a farm and must go and see it. Please excuse me. And another said, I bought five teams of oxen and I'm going to check on them. Please excuse me. Another said, I just got married, so I can't come. When he returned, the servant reported these excuses to his master. The master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go quickly to the city streets, the busy ones and the side streets and bring the poor crippled, blind and lame. The servant said, master, your instructions have been followed and there is still room the master said to his servant, go to the highways and back alleys and urge people to come in so that my house will be filled. I tell you, not one of those who are invited will taste my dinner. See, the host invites all of his friends, his family, his, his neighbors, everyone that he knows from his own social circles. And one by one, they decline his invitation not because necessarily they're, they're uninterested or they'd rather just catch up on laundry or catch up on watching their favorite TV shows. No, they, they do have some legitimate schedule conflicts. One just bought a field. One just got married. They, they aren't trivial things. Some excuses are, are lamer than others. But, but nevertheless, this would have been a great insult to the host at this day and age. It would have been insulting for people to turn down an invitation as if the host were unworthy of them. And so the host decides, well, I'm not going to let all this food go to waste. I'm going to invite some other guests, those who, who never otherwise would have been invited to a meal such as this because their presence there would turn such a beautiful occasion into something that would be just so shameful in the eyes of the host, the blind, the lame, the crippled, the poor, those who in that society were looked upon as your condition in life means that you must have done something wrong 
to deserve this, to deserve this place in society. You, you must have done something wrong. And yet the host invites them. And here they come, but, but there's still more room. And so the host tells the servant, go back out again. Now, now go further into the countryside, meaning probably enemy territory like the Samaritans and, and go further back into the back alley so that this feast can be enjoyed by all. And, and a significant and a real note is that the host tells the servant, urge the people Beg them, compel them to come to the banquet. Why, why do they have to be compelled? Why do they, why do they have to be urged? I mean, this is, this is a free meal. Why would you have to be urged? Well, in a society of such uh, sharp social distinctions, the unworthy, poor, blind, crippled, lame would have never dreamed of attending a feast hosted by some rich, honorable person that they would probably feel awkward or, or reluctant to enjoy this like Michelin star dining experience. And think about this in, in our own terms for a second. Would, would an immigrant maid feel comfortable sitting at the family table or, or a landscaper or, or a homeless veteran joining a family at the dining table? That, that's, that's reserved for, for the family alone. I, I have no place there. And yet the host has made up his mind that, that this is now exactly who the banquet is for. And I bet they had one heck of a party. I mean, I bet, I bet it was just, it was off the charts. It was lit. I don't know if kids still say that these days, but I bet it was, it was just really great. And it's hard to imagine that those who were, who were originally invited, those who were originally on the guest list would even want to come anymore after seeing now who is on the guest list, that it's now become a banquet full of, of those people. The host has, has totally changed the nature of the party and social status and income. That, that doesn't mean anything anymore. And I believe that Jesus is telling this story, this, this parable, because this is his vision for the church. That, that social status, he's saying, is that's just a product of, of peer approval. And it can be snatched away just as quickly as it's lavished on. And honor, the only honor that, that should mean anything to you is the honor that God gives you. That's the only honor that matters. And, you know, Jesus he not only taught in parables and, and riddles and all these confusing things, but, but Jesus was a walking riddle. I mean, he was confounding to the people of his day and age that, that, that nobody from would think that, that this carpenter's kid from Nazareth would be who he claimed to be. And yet he was the son of God. That Jesus was this poor, homeless rabbi, and yet he was the greatest teacher that the world has ever known. And this Jesus built the most culturally, economically, socially, racially, politically diverse movement that the human race has ever seen before. It's Jesus's church. And he is the host of this strange, beautiful awkward 
party. And we are invited as his guests so that no matter where you come from, no matter where you have been, you're, you're treated as family here. And we don't always get it right. I'll, I'll admit us as, as a local church, we do not always get this right. We don't live up to Jesus's strange and sometimes extreme standards for hospitality. But I do believe at, at the core of my being that the church is for everyone. That everyone belongs at church. And, and sometimes, you know, we, we say that and we just brush by it, that it's, it's just a statement of fact. But, but really, there are so many people who, when they think of the church, they don't think of it as a place where they can belong. They don't think of it as a place that they are invited to the table to sit with others. And so I want to do my best. I want to do my best to make sure that the church can be all that I believe that it can be all, all that I believe Jesus wants the church to be in the way that he lived his life, the movement that he created. And so if you've ever felt uninvited, if you've ever felt unwelcomed, then I hope that you hear the, the simple good news today that Jesus invites those who others reject. That was always Jesus's posture. He's always inviting those whom others reject. And his guest list doesn't have any caps. It doesn't have any qualifications on it. Jesus says, come to me, come to me. All, all who are weary, all who are, who are wrecked by shame, all who are burdened by guilt, all who are hungry, all who are thirsty, come to me. I've saved you a seat right here at the family dining table. Jesus didn't come for the healthy. He came for the sick. He, he didn't come for the self-proclaimed righteous. He came for repentant sinners. He came for all of us. And so today is, is world communion Sunday celebrates the, the breadth and the inclusiveness of this Jesus movement, this church that stretches all around the globe, that, that today, no matter how big or how small a church might be, their altar stretches 197 million miles squared all around the world, that Christians come together today to celebrate a common act of worship, a common meal together, Jesus's final meal that he gave to us as an offering of his love. That today there are churches, Christians in, in Europe who will kneel under stained glass in these beautiful cathedrals and they'll receive God's grace for them. And at the same time, there will be Christians in South America, places like our sister church in Cuba that will gather together today under essentially a hut that also is the pastor's house and they will receive God's gift for them today. Christians in Eastern Europe who have not been able to practice their faith openly for decades will come together today and receive God's grace for themselves. And also there will be many Christians who gather today in fear of being arrested 
for partaking of these common elements in worship. Bread and a cup can still be so revolutionary and upsetting for the world. And so today there will be many different ways to the banquet. There, there's many different table etiquettes. There will be many different languages shared among the table, but there's still one common bond. It's our one human need that we need this Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That Jesus didn't come just for Jewish need, just for the needs of the religious elite. Jesus didn't come for American need or Asian need or Canadian need or any of that. Jesus came for all human need. And so what we do in this act of worship today is that we say we don't have a monopoly on God, that God is not ours, but we, all of us are God's. And God is bigger than any denomination. God is bigger than any location. God is the host of this party and his table stretches so wide. So Jesus invites you and I urge you that this morning as we celebrate Christ redeeming love, it stretches from all corners of the world as Christians gather together today. One faith. One Lord, one cup, one loaf, one invitation.